0: This is an ABC podcast.
1: Countrywide on ABC Radio. Ultimately, we have animals in society because they turn food that we can't eat into food
2: that we can.
0: Now when I pick up a carrot, it's not just an ordinary carrot.
2: Countrywide. 30,000 tonnes a week, something like
0: that. Uh, that doesn't even cover the issue on broadband. Climb down off your ivory tower in Canberra. You've never set foot on a farm.
3: Countrywide, the politics of food and farming on ABC Radio. Hi, welcome to Countrywide, I'm David Claughton. And the rain keeps tumbling down. The weather continues to dominate conversations in the bush. And freight operators in particular are worried about how they'll get the next crop out of the paddock and into the silos, given the damage to so many rural roads and major highways.
4: I've never seen it like it. Like for years we used to go to Queensland and think their roads are pretty ordinary and now everyone comes up here and thinks New South Wales is the worst to go to.
3: There were some big announcements this week, including the federal government's review of the immigration system, which could have a big impact on the massive worker shortage in agriculture. But first to the wool industry, and a world shearing record was broken in Western Australia. It was at Wayne Peck's Shearing Shed in WA's Great Southern Region. And the three shearers were brothers – Lou and Jim Brown, along with their cousin Imran Sullivan. They worked three stands over eight hours to shear over 1,600 lambs, so they smashed the previous world record of around 1,200. Let's join the action just before the end.
0: So, Wayne, you've got a shearing record on your property today. How does it feel to be hosting?
5: Yeah, it's fantastic. It's uh, just great to see all all aspects of the sheep and agriculture industry come together and I think it's a really great initiative to have Lou, Jim and Imran approach me for this record attempt and and to be able to to showcase a lot of the good aspects of of the sheep industry.
0: How long has this been in the making?
5: Uh, Lou first chatted to me... A couple of years ago, actually, when he when he was shearing at our shed and said this three stand record, while quite a demanding day, was actually more achievable than some of the other world records. And um, so we started thinking about it then, and we nearly went ahead next year, but then then COVID slowed it down with getting uh, or just put a stop to it with getting judges from New Zealand. Um, and and really, that's better. We've had another twelve months to prepare for it. So it's 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 been two years in the making.
6: Yeah, um, Maisie McFarlane and um, I'm a rouseabout. I just have like one second to even look at the boys. I haven't even been able to check it. Just making sure I'm watching the wool because there's just not t- any time to like really do anything else.
5: Yeah, yeah, it's, it's amazing the um, help from my staff and the help from other people in the shearing industry. The, the amount of work that's been involved in preparing these sheep. Um, a, a lot of work yesterday getting the sheep ready uh, for today's shearing attempt. It it's just shows uh, the amount of teamwork. And, and the positive energy that's um, happened when everything comes together. It's, it's a really fantastic day.
6: Seeing the way they're sweating, oh my god. I, I don't know how they're doing it, but they've pumping way harder than I've seen ever. So I'm pretty proud of like, the way they're actually working. It's, it's amazing how quick they can, and efficient they can be. Like, we have hardly any skin coming out, which is awesome. So they're quite clean but um, there's a little bit of stain on the roof, but that's, that's not too much really, so, yeah.
7: So, you're a record holder now, how's it feel?
8: I feel sore, a little bit
7: sore.
9: Yeah. <laughs> I don't know how I feel actually, it's sort of just numb all over. Uh, I'm Jim Wairahu Brown. Uh, we just broke the free stand record and uh, that was a tough effort.
0: Yeah. How do you feel now? Very sore. And what was motivating you to just keep going along?
9: Oh, family, friends, crew, everyone that's put in the work.
0: Was there a Sponsors. bit of competition between you and your brother and cousin?
9: Oh, I've been sharing so well leading up I thought I could stick with them, but today they've horsed it out, so respect no matter what for everyone.
0: And when that timer went off, how did you feel?
9: Oh, relieved. Yeah, I wanted a beer.
0: <laughs> and there was just such a massive crew behind you today, yeah, in front yeah, of you. Like...
9: Yeah, they saw how hard I was doing it. they what egged me on. I hit a wall, like I was sore.
0: When did you hit the wall? Just
9: emotions. Yeah. I'm not completely like I was going to stop or anything, just hurting. Yeah.
0: And what kind of
9: got you over the line in the end? Well, the crew, thinking of everyone, what they've done for me, and family, and just respect. Couldn't let anyone down. Oh, We're prepared for it our whole lives, you know. It's been passed down from the last generation and you're just using the information that they've taught us, all the knowledge, that's where it comes from.
0: And what was going through your head, especially in that last run?
9: Oh, everything, heaps of things, mixed emotions. You just take it as it comes and just keep going, keep digging. So that's all you want to find all day, I think, is a rhythm. But
3: it was sort of hard. Like um, sometimes you just get a hard sheep, and then your foot, get your feet
8: work will get in front of your blows, and yeah, sheep will play up a little bit. But I don't know. They
0: each have their own personality, don't yeah, they?
8: Yeah, they do, and you can tell right from the get-go whether it's going to be a good one or a nice one, you know. But that's it's all right. right. I was probably cutting them and pulling their hair, out their wool out? So you know, fair's fair. Love and war go get a rub down, uh, a few electrolytes and then a couple of beers, I think. It's been a, been a bit of a journey to get here, so it's always been in the back of the mind to do something like this, and um, this record was up for grabs and, and the cousin hooked it up, so, yeah, it's, it's pretty good. All, all the family and all that's here, everyone's come from far and wide, like, people I ain't seen for ages, so it's pretty cool. It's good that it's for, like, um, something good, not a funeral, that, that's the cool part about it.
6: Yeah, be cool to have it on, like on record that I'm, I was in it and a part of it and yeah I appreciate the whole opportunity of being a rousey that's like passes to be a part of it so yeah
5: <laughs> I just think the sheep industry and agriculture is, is such an important part of WA and too often we don't necessarily um, get the good news stories out there about, about how good uh, we are at farming and, and producing and This is one way of showing that. Shearing is such a um, physically demanding and technical and and repetitive industry. I've just got uh, so much respect for for any shearers that make this their life and and their work and and I think all we can do to promote what can happen in shearing whether it's setting records or travelling the world while they're working is, um, is, is good for the sheep industry.
3: Farmer Wayne Peck talking to Sophie Johnson about a new three-stand world shearing record. Another record was set in Wagga, this time with a record yarding of 81,000 sheep put up for sale. Paul Martin, the manager of Wagga Wagga Livestock Marketing Centre, said the massive numbers might have scared off a few sellers and the logistical challenges caused by the floods might have made transport pretty difficult. Our reporter Simon Wallace went to have a look at the big yarding.
10: We heard that there's going to be 107,000 sheep and lambs today. What's
11: happened? Uh, yes, Simon. So 107,000 uh, was what we drew for yesterday morning at 10 o'clock, or half past 10 yesterday morning. That was uh, quite a staggering figure for everybody in the you know o- operationally on site to get their heads around for today. Uh, we went back out to we went back out and revisited that number yesterday afternoon about three o'clock. Uh, where we saw the numbers uh, drop back to about ninety thousand thereabouts, um, and then this morning, after the stock have started arriving and we 've got a, a reasonable a reasonable quantified estimate of about eighty thousand eighty one thousand for the day, so so eighty thousand is a record it will be yeah yep that 'll be a new record about five six thousand uh, above uh, the standing record here on site. I think it was back. 2012 somewhere around there maybe 2012 I'd stand corrected on that um, but it was uh, that was a record set through drought years. Uh, so this is uh, this is vastly different as well to see a record or a number of stock at, at this at this time of year and we're, we're talking real good quality finished stock you know so it's uh, it's a really it's a real positive for it's a positive for the producers it's a positive for you know everybody involved. Why do you think it's so high? Why are you getting so many numbers? Uh well, again, too, I think there'll be a multiple number of factors there. You know, the continued wet, um, seeing, you know, seeing the 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 impact that the Lachlan flooding there through Forbes has had. Forbes is our closest uh, large sheep selling centre to to Wagga, um, uh, so logic would say that anything south of the Lachlan that is ready for market is, you know, may well be coming here instead at the end of the day too it's it's a seasonal or it's it's considered a a standard sort of seasonal movement of the stock that we'll see our numbers increase this time of year so i guess that impacted with the with the wet people having access to to their stock and, and transport you know it's all sort of accumulating into one point paul martin
3: manager of the wagga wagga livestock marketing center to cattle now, and while prices were a bit down at the Wagga sale due to the large numbers, the price of live cattle getting shipped to Indonesia has surged in recent weeks. Feeder steers out of Darwin are selling for well above $5 a kilo, and they'll go into feedlots overseas to get fattened up and sold again. Troy Setter from the Consolidated Pastoral Company says demand from Indonesia is picking up, which is great for Australian cattle producers. But Indonesian feedlots are facing a lot of challenges.
2: So, I think the live cattle trade, particularly out of Northern Australia, is kicked up in the last couple of months. There was a fair bit of uncertainty and, and challenge to a lot of the importers in Indonesia in particular, uh, with foot and mouth and lumpy skin. We've now got vaccine in country. Um, and, uh, and we've seen increase in numbers through October, November that looks like it'll flow through, to, uh, through into December. Uh, there's a couple of things. One, feedlot's trying to refill in Indonesia, but also get cattle on feed now for Ramadan and Labaran next year, which is at the back end of Q1.
5: OK, I've, I've heard of some cattle, not all cattle, but some steers in the Northern
2: Territory got around five dollars thirty a kilo the other day. Now how palatable is that at the other end of the supply chain? Look mate, yeah, five dollars thirty and, and even out to five fifty the other day mm. is is sort of is very toppy. Um, that won't work on a you know animal by animal basis for importers at, at this time but you know they'll they'll be able to work averages, there's a there's some optimism by some of the exporters and importers that they'll be able to get the price up in Indonesia. But I think, you know, that sort of 510, 520 will work at a pinch, but you know, 530 is tight. But, um, you know, Indonesia has, has struggled uh, with foot and mouth disease control and lumpy skin control. The local herd has been uh, knocked around a bit. And uh, I think, you know, there'll be some shorts in the market at the back end of Q1 next year. Troy Setter, head of the Consolidated
3: Pastoral Company, speaking to Matt Brown at a conference in Darwin. The federal government has announced it will review the immigration system to make it simpler and stop the rorting and exploitation of workers, and that could have major implications for farmers. The ag sector relies on seasonal workers and professionals to cover shortages in key areas and at key times, but some of those schemes have been plagued by shonky labour hire companies employing people on tourist visas for low wages and poor conditions. The Australian Workers Union wants to see all that tightened up with a national system of registrations for employers, tax file numbers for all employees, and a pick-it-up-and-go system to enable workers to move around. Daniel Walton, National Secretary of the AWU, told me that workers should have the capacity to change employers.
12: We want to see workers have the capacity to be able to up and go. That is, is, if you're a visa worker working in agriculture and you find yourself on a bad farm, that you can shift and change employer. That doesn't happen at the moment. What happens for workers, if you raise complaints from farms at the moment, for a lot of them, particularly our friends in the Pacific, is they get told they're on the next plane back home to bring shame to their community. And so we've seen countless, countless investigations. You know, this will be another one, which will no doubt point out all the problems, but I'm hopeful now that with the change of government, there's an appetite here to actually fix it at the end of the day.
3: Do employers put in a lot of resources to get people onto their farm or their agricultural business so the idea that they could just up and go might be frustrating for them
12: well i think if you look at it in agriculture in comparison to everywhere else like if you're bringing workers over to work in your business every other industry pays for those workers to come over in agriculture workers have their flights deducted they have deductions taken out for accommodation deductions for transport for water for ppe agricultural workers in this country are treated like second-class citizens and so I think if we're going to have a deep dive into this, we've got to have a look to say, well, what happens if you're coming over to work in construction or resources and how does that compare to agriculture? Over in New Zealand, we know that workers have got portability that they can up and go if they are working in an unsafe farm or a farm who's not doing the right thing. And I've just spoken to a lot of farmers over the time and they, I think they will welcome that because what it will do is shake out the shonks out of the industry that is if everyone is up and leaving from the dodgy farms and people are going to stay working on the good operators and I think overall that will provide a better outcome for the industry but also provide a better outcome for Australia and Australia's reputation for many great workers from around the world coming here to earn some money and help our agriculture industry continue to function.
5: From the
3: top end to Tassie countrywide on ABC radio. Cropping now, and a consortium of farmers, industry and scientists is launching a bid to massively expand Australia's hemp crop. Hemp has enormous potential, but it's been held back here and in other countries because of its associations with cannabis use. The hemp CRC bid is asking the federal government to match $50 million worth of support already pledged by industry, and to establish a cooperative research centre to reverse what it says is 80 years of neglect. The BID's interim chief executive, University of Southern Queensland Professor Gavin Ash, wants to see the national crop expanded from the current 2,300 hectares to more than 100,000
8: over the next decade. He explains more to Kelly Buchanan. So hemp is one of these wonder crops. We can use hemp for nutrition we can use it for medicine, we can use it in cosmetics, we can use it in animals and humans, we can use it in building materials, so we can use it to replace plastics, we can sequester as much carbon in a hemp field as a young pine forest, a 10-year-old pine forest does, only in 120 days.
0: So is it purely its association with marijuana that's held it back so far?
8: Absolutely. There was a, a problem with hemp competing with cotton, and so the cotton industry, with some uh, nasty friends, not necessarily the cotton industry itself, actually had a campaign against hemp that stopped hemp production around the world for 80 years. So we have 80 years' worth of research to catch up on everywhere around the world and to use this crop in so many different ways.
0: Are you feeling the turning point?
8: Absolutely. The situation is that everybody feels now is the time for this. We, we have to look at these shortened supply chains. We have to be able to be self-sufficient, but we have to be able to develop crops that will feed, nourish and clothe our current generations. So we can use, for example, in a textile industry, we can have hemp clothing. This is very much similar to linen clothing that you can have, but it's biodegradable or compostable. And so we're talking about being able to get the full extent of use from your clothes over time, so keeping them out of garbage heaps around the world. We can also use hemp to build houses, so we can use it mixed with concrete. Hempcrete will continue to absorb carbon dioxide out of the air even after the building's built, so these are carbon negative buildings. Some of these other compounds that are in hemp, CBDs, some of these can help people in terms of rheumatoid arthritis, treating people for pain, treating appetite for cancer patients. There is research on the effect on endometriosis and brain injury. There's a whole range of these types of compounds that are just sitting there waiting for the development to actually bring those to market.
0: How large is the gap in our knowledge about how to grow it how to do it successfully, how to commercialise it, how to transition existing farming systems into growing it?
8: It's it's a, a big hill to climb. We do have varieties in Australia that are suited to Australian conditions, but we can do better. We can do... Varieties that produce grain, varieties that produce fibre, varieties that produce both. And so there's an opportunity to put this into existing farming systems. So we could have it in anywhere you can grow sorghum, where you're growing sugarcane or where you're growing cotton. And it could be in-season rotation or another crop because it grows so quickly, 120 days.
0: And is it a case of something like the CRC would give farmers confidence that they had the same agronomic backing and understanding of that crop as they do crops like sugarcane that they are familiar with having grown for the past 80 years?
8: Yeah, so we've actually got a whole program built around growing the plant, so behind the farm gate. So what are the supports that farmers need? What are the varieties that farmers need? What are the varietal packages that they need to give them confidence in how to grow it? But we're also building those supply chains. So uh, what's the opportunity in animal food, in human food, in clothing, in construction, so that those industries will be growing along with the production and so giving them that conduit to a market straight away. So both the push and the pull factors.
0: So what's it going to take to get this bid off the ground?
8: So at the moment we've been pulling together whole groups of industry partners. So at the moment we have over 50 industry partners who are interested in investing in this CRC, where we'll be then going to the Australian government and asking for dollar for dollar. So we're looking at a total value of the hemp CRC of $200 million over 10 years. We think that's the sort of money, that's the sort of time that's needed to get that hemp industry on an even keel and make it so it's a sustainable crop for Australian farmers.
0: And what's the time frame? When will you know whether the government's going to back this idea?
8: So we're waiting at the moment for the government to call around. Uh, Usually they call around, there's two parts around, a phase one and a phase two. In any normal year, it would be starting the middle of next year. We're still waiting on the government to make that call.
3: Hemp CRC bid interim chief executive Gavin Ash speaking to Kelly Buchanan. The wine industry is facing some tough times with the latest figures out this week showing exports are down in all the key markets and a growing stockpile of wine in Australia weighing down the market. Away from the depressing sales figures though, the industry celebrated a milestone. Fed up with their best wine spoiling, 14 winemakers from South Australia's Clare Valley band together two decades ago and unknowingly began a movement that would see the global wine industry change forever. 20 years ago, only 2% of Australia's white wines were bottled with a screw cap. But now that figure stands at 98%. There's barely a cork in sight. Demetria Panagiataris has the story.
13: When you head into your local bottle to grab your favourite wines, you probably don't overthink the fact that most of the wines you see have a screw cap. But in the early 2000s, cork dominated the tops of bottles and screw caps were known as a trialled but failed experiment. However, all that was set to change after 14 winemakers from the Clare Valley met in a pub one night. Andrew Hardy explains.
10: The, the cork taint problem in world wine, but especially in Australian wine at the time, was huge. And Through the 90s we were paying a lot of money for what was supposed to be very good corks and they were not. And we were getting huge cork tank problems. The winemakers in Clare, of us, got together and and we started talking about doing screw caps. Remembering that screw caps had been done before in the um, late 60s, early 70s. It wasn't brand new technology, but it it fell foul of uh, people didn't like it back then in the 70s. It was not received well back then. We thought we could change that perception.
13: What came after that discussion was what Mr Hardy called a media blitz. They literally hit the road to show people exactly what screw caps could do.
10: Once the consumers started seeing it, the convenience factor came in as well. I didn't need a corkscrew anymore. But it really was—it was not at all about convenience. It was all about quality in the bottle. And we—and you know—that's we were able to show people. And really, we were only in the beginning of people drinking table wine in Australia. Was you know, because up until the early 60s, it was a fortified industry. You know, most people drank port, beer, and tea. Um, so the—you know—the wine boom hadn't had only just really started in Australia. So. I think that the learning curve was very quick. People sort of got to realise that, that it didn't taste any good, some of these wines, so they, they were more willing to change. But the publicity and the, and the promotion that we did was vital. You know, the whole, the whole wine world looked at what we were doing with real interest and um, as, you know, saw an opportunity.
13: Winemaker Hilary Mitchell from Mitchell Wines recalls her family being the first to go all in, bravely bottling both their red and white wines, and she backed it completely.
7: One of my first jobs actually when I was at university was doing the in-store tastings for mum and dad. So I'd go around to bottle shops and everybody would be asking like, what is this? How do you open it? (laughs) (laughs) Isn't it just for cheap wines? And I was the face on the street (laughs) trying to explain it to the customers. People liked the fact that they could open it quickly and easily and put the screw cap back on. And it was just those initial kind of people missing the romance of cork but once they realised it was easier and better quality it was a no-brainer.
13: Hilary Mitchell credits a few things to the screw-capped shift success, among those the power of numbers and the gift of foresight.
7: I mean part of it was being at the, the right place at the right time just the world was ready it just needed people to actually say let's do it and the fact that it was Clear Valley putting their premium Rieslings under screw cap was just that little push that everybody needed to go on board because so many other people had tried to do it and it almost sent their companies broke. I think 20 years later, I mean, some people drinking wine now probably never even had a corked wine. They don't know the world without screw cap, <laughs> So they probably wouldn't realised that it was something 20 years ago that happened in a a pub in Clare. I mean, it was such a great idea for the winemakers, realising they had one of their best 2002 vintages on hand, just put it aside in the vault, thinking we're going to do this tasting in 20 years, just to show how well our wines age and how we could do that, only ever do
13: that with screw caps. Managing Director of Taylor Wines, Mitchell Taylor, calls that night at the Rising Sun Hotel a meeting of the minds.
10: Oh, globally, I think we were really the ones that that drove the initiative. Uh, We were pivotal for making it a success. And as soon as we could prove that success, the rest of the wine world really embraced it. A lot of the large UK supermarkets were sick of having customer complaints regularly about cork. And so all of a sudden we eliminated all the wastage and all the customer complaints. uh, other regions around the world started to copy us. The New Zealand winemakers, they, they followed shortly after the Clare Valley winemakers. So, yeah, we were really instrumental in making this a great success around the world.
13: Tony Battaline, CEO of Australia Grape & Wine, says that although there was some hesitancy in the beginning, the Clare Valley's influence on the global shift was immense.
1: Well, what we were concerned about was the fact that consumers wouldn't accept wine under screw cap. We thought that people liked the sound of the cork coming out and the theatre of a cork being taken out of the bottle. So it, that, after that initial trial, I guess, from the, the, the Clare Valley, it started to get adopted around the world. And what we found was consumers actually liked it. It was convenient and that was really important in that you didn't have to have a corkscrew in your back pocket. So uh, it was a gradual thing, but now with probably 98% of wine in Australia is produced under a screw cap. I, I, think, I think absolutely we were the leaders in it. And because Australia went to screw cap so quickly, because of the quality aspect and because we exported a lot to markets like the United Kingdom back, back then and the United States in particular, those two markets started to adopt this. Then everyone else saw that it was working because those consumers would, would try take it. So I think our influence was the Pathfinder was immense.
3: That's Australian Grape & Wine Chief Executive Tony Badaline. And lastly, to the floods, New South Wales and Victoria have been battling long-running inundations, and that looks set to continue with more rain falling. It's making life very difficult for freight companies who are trying to move grain, livestock and other food around the country. Daniel Ball is a freight contractor in the central west of New South Wales, and he says he's never seen it so wet. He's worried that some roads will just cave in when put under stress from the large B-double trucks used by the freight industry.
4: It's gonna go deep in the sense of um, just, it's at a bad time. Like just right at harvest time and everyone's trying to get up and down that highway, there's a lot of farms that use that highway's key access to get to the grain grain terminal. So um, you know, it's probably it's it's gonna knock that around a lot. So by forcing them off that new highway and shut, they're gonna be going on a lot of more rural roads, which is gonna obviously impact that. And before this flood come then roads are in, in, in a terrible state just from all the rain events and the traffic like this it's um i've never seen anything like it like for years we used to go to queensland and think air roads are pretty ordinary and now everyone comes up here and thinks new south wales is the worst to go to and it's been a mission on its own for the shires no doubt just with all the weather and 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 all the access and all that's been a, been a mission for them um but every time you say something to one of the council fellows and talk, you know, this is a joke, we get this on top of this, they all talk about their funding's not there, they haven't got funding for this, they haven't got funding for that, and and they, and they can't go and fix it without getting it approved first for the funding, and then they'll come out and inspect it or something, and the funding's, you know, they say, oh, your road's not that bad, they don't get the funding. So they're not fixing anything until it's been approved for funding and all that, and therefore the roads are getting in twice as bad a state, because nothing's been um, they're getting twice as bad a stake because they've been left too long. Like a small job turns into a major job because they don't want to touch it until somebody inspects it so they approve for funding. It just creates this big snowball effect. But that highway alone, like it's it's just, there's been talk about it for ages about with the floodway there, especially with the floodway where it's closed at the moment. Um, they wanted to, you know, there's been people saying, you know, you need to get more coal that's under the road. And every time they do an upgrade, all the locals are go, mate, this isn't, this isn't going to work here. You've got in a floodway here, there needs to be more culverts, And the engineers turn up from God knows where and say, oh, no, no, it works on paper. And anyway, next thing it's a disaster and they go, oh, well, we tried. And, and the, if they listen to the locals, they might, they might get somewhere, but I can do it three times.
3: Daniel Ball, freight contractor from New South Wales. And that's Countrywide for this week. I'm David Claughton.